Welcome to the Help One Child podcast. This is the show that equips adoptive and foster parents with information from experts in the fields of trauma and attachment. Our hope is that with every episode, you will find helpful insights and practical parenting tips. My name is Kristen Wynn Reyes, and I am your host today. Do you have a child who joined your family through adoption, foster care, or a kinship placement? If yes, you're listening to the right podcast. Our topic today is how to nurture healthy attachment to help adopted and foster teens and young adults launch. Our guest today is Wendy Witham, a licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice, an adoptive mom, and a Help One Child Education Committee member, blog contributor, and parent trainer. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Kristen. I'm, I appreciate being here. Can you share an overview, Wendy, to start with our parents? Um, what do we need to know about ongoing attachment relationship, attachment needs, and launching? Yes, well, attachment security is something um, that is ongoing throughout life. And so this security in adolescents and young adults has the same effect on development as it does in early childhood. So as, as parents continue to be a secure base, uh, that fosters exploration and cognitive and social emotional development in our children and competency. Uh, and these attachment needs um, such as safety and trust and empathy, belonging, efficacy, basically that having someone in their life that says, I believe in you, and then the child can believe in themselves. And these are needs that our young children have, but also our young adult children have into their adulthood and actually we have throughout our life. Uh, and we know that attachment experiences continue to change the brain. So with many attachment figures over time that continues to create those great connections in the brain, new memories, new positive experiences, uh, new ways of thinking, being able to think positively about oneself and the world, having the ability to see things for uh, what they really are. All of that continues in our brain, uh, developing in our brain, but attachment experiences contribute to that. So what's so great about attachment is that whatever time we have with children as foster parents or adoptive parents over time, we continue to have impact in their lives. And that makes a difference for them going forward. Uh, as far as launching, you know, there are a lot of ways to um, define that. We think traditionally launching might be turning 18, becoming an adult, um, finishing high school, college, employment, independent living, all those financial responsibility. But it also involves good social and life skills. And maybe particularly important, important for these kids is good mental health and being able to have healthy adult relationships and continuing their healing process of from trauma and attachment disruption and being able to obtain insight to themselves. So what's challenging about 
um, attachment development is that these kids are on a very different timeline sometimes. It may take much longer than what we would would typically see or hope to see for young people. And there may be many blips. And what I mean by that, uh, they might not be able to move in these um, uh, launching skills. They might, we hope that they are able to take those steps simultaneously, do many of the, these things simultaneously. But these kids might not be able to. They might be able to do one at a time, or they might be able to make some progress in some areas and then have some setbacks. So we really have to keep the perspective that they are on their own timeline and they are uh, they have many hurdles that they're overcoming, but they may well be getting there on in their own time. So that's a good thing to hold on to. Great. And um, thank you. Going into the adolescent phase, what is significant about the age of 10 to 25 for brain development and behavior that we could be attentive to for our adolescent children? Well, adolescence is actually defined as being in that age range, age 10 to 25. So it's a long period. And during that time, it's considered the most significant, second most significant time of brain development after early childhood. And I think we might see that more in later teens and early 20s where this rewiring is going on. But there's a significant uh, change in the brain that's happening and new connections, new neural connections are happening, but others are also going offline for a while. So what that means is that young people actually lose some capacity or have reduced capacity during this time to have to reflect to plan to organize some of those cognitive skills or executive functioning skills actually diminish for a time and there's an increase in things like risk-taking behavior distractibility conflict seeking you know the things that we often see in teens and actually young adults in their 1920 2021 those age range so in other words the the executive functioning of the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. And until that happens, um, they don't have all those great executive skills of being able to focus attention, weighing consequences of their behavior, setting goals, managing those intense emotions and having impulse control. They don't have all of that ability yet because their brain is still developing and they're getting there. And again, because of other factors for these particular kids, that may even be delayed beyond age 25. So again, they're on their own time frame and they're do that's happening at different rates. And there may be things like developmental delays learning disabilities, mental and medical health issues, not to mention trauma and attachment disruptions that just slow down that process. But they are, but it's still happening. The brain is still heading in that direction to get to that good executive functioning so they can be successful adults. Thank you. I think that's probably very reassuring for parents to hear some of these Behaviors are normal and typical for any adolescent. And then also that there's hope. There is that progress being made in the brain. Yes, definitely. Yes. Um, 
Can you share about typical adolescence identity formation, maybe talk a little bit about emotional development and cognitive development? Yes, well, identity formation is that major developmental task for this age. And it's really the question, who am I? And it also involves an individual identifying themselves while individuating from their family. So figuring out how do I do separateness and how do I do togetherness? So I don't wanna lose myself, but I also don't wanna lose my family and those relationships, I can, I can have both and negotiating how do I do both of those things. And that big question of who am I is not only about what are my values and thoughts and feelings, but also what makes me unique and what are my affiliations? Who do I belong to going forward? Who is my family, my culture, my race? It might be affiliations with skills and talents, affiliations with occupations. So there are many aspects to this question of who am I that people, young people are figuring out during this age range. And along with that, some of the emotional development that goes on, this is not by any means um, a comprehensive list or all the things that happen, but some of them are they're moving into adult relationships with their parents, having greater empathy and intimacy skills, um, being able to understand their emotional experiences, uh, being able to label them and express them. This is such an important emotional skill for them to have, to have emotional expression and to be comfortable with a wide range of emotions and to be able to understand what they mean. And then to continue with their values framework, what they, moral development, uh, what they believe in and what will be some foundations for them going forward in terms of values. And then as far as cognitive development, that involves moving into all those great aspects of adult roles and responsibilities like work and higher education, um, being able to understand abstract concepts, um, and really importantly, understanding uh, aware of consequences, choice and consequences, and being able to assess that, understanding their own strengths and limitations and identifying uh, maybe life goals and career goals and how they can take steps to achieve them. And then practicing lots of good decision-making skills and building on their ability to do that. So there's needless to say a lot going on in this period of time, lots of hurdles, and it's a very you know challenging time for adolescents and young adults to be working through all of this. It sounds like it, yes. So our parents of, of adolescents and young adults right. uh, know this best, I'm sure, and the, right. the adolescents and young adults themselves. Um, now, put on top of that, children who are um, coming out of a foster or adoptive experience, what are the layers that that, that adds um, that those young people are working out in this formative adolescent stage? How does it complicate it, I guess? Yeah, and it really can complicate it, of course. And so during um, identity formation, when that question of who am I is so prominent, it, it's more complicated by who am I in relationship to my biolog biological parents, but also to my adoptive 
foster parents, caregivers, who am I in relationship to all of these people in my life? Where do I belong? And that can reawaken feelings of loss and abandonment by biological parents or a sense of missing parts for a child, missing parts of themselves. It's also a time when uh, kids become more interested and are able to handle getting more information about uh, missing or difficult information about their birth family and want to know more about their ancestry and their genetics. And again, can handle getting more difficult information. Um, they're also figuring out how they're going to have adult relationships with their biological family or kinship family if that's available to them. And then they're uncertain about their uh, adoptive and foster parents level of commitment to them. In other words, will I be abandoned again? How do I feel about belonging to this current family, my adoptive or foster family? And so all of this heightens a sense of loss of control and a loss of trust in adults. So it's interesting that trust again becomes a, a major issue for young people in this age range. And they really struggle with that even when they were able to trust earlier in their relationships. It seems like they were more trusting when they were younger. Now they become less so because it's all part of that individuating process and figuring this, this out. And so of course we know that they cope with all of this adjustment through lots of dysregulated emotion and challenging behavior. And that's just how they're trying to handle and figure out and defend against the, um, uh, the stress of figuring all of this out. Who am I with all of these factors in their life? So that helps us understand why the behavior can be so uh, distressing for us and difficult to manage. And from a practical perspective, I guess, what can parents do at this stage in supporting the child on uh, identity formation and value formation um, with these challenging behaviors, with um, all the maybe rejection or avoidance right. that comes up, you know, are there any practical suggestions for how the parent reassures that trust or reassures that relationship? Yeah. yeah well, that actually, that's a good question. Thank you for asking that. Cause that's, um, uh, might not be something I would remember to comment on as we go along. Uh, you know, during this time when when kids are this age and young adults, they're really able to handle direct information and they're able to handle, I think, conversations when we as parents can just give them a framework. We understand what's going on. No wonder you feel so angry and no, or no wonder you want to withdraw. Boy, we really understand why you're um, you know, acting out. We don't want to use that word with young people, but we understand why you're doing these things or don't want to do these things. This is really hard, isn't it? Because you're wondering about who you are. You're figuring that out. And what about your biological family? And um, so there's just l lots of layers of information that I think we can give very matter-of-factly with with great uh, empathy and care to our kids and just say we we think we understand what's going on 
and here's why. And we hope that that helps you understand young person about what's going on. And, um, and, and even giving them under, uh, understanding about that they might be feeling unsafe or mistrustful because something is, re is reminding them of something in the past that was safe that was unsafe. So it's reminding them of a trauma. You know, we use the term trauma trigger. And so letting them know, we think this feels scary because it's reminding you of something that happened before. But let's take a moment and, and kind of look around and do some relaxation and take hold. And is there, are there ways that you can see that you're actually safe in the moment? And are there ways you can see that you're secure with me in your relationship with me as your foster parent or adoptive parent, or that I'm here to support you? So anyway, I hope I'm making sense in, in just clarifying what the what the dynamics are that are going on and trying to engage them. And then I think sometimes moving in and saying, great, let's do some, I want to let you, I want to let you calm down because I know that's what you need. I want to let you take a break. And then I'm going to move in again and we'll start talking about this again because I want you to know that I'm going to keep um, trying to be that secure base for you, trying to be that secure person for you. So I think those kinds of things can really help with older adults, uh, with older teens and, and young adults to have these conversations. Great. Yeah. As thank a start you. anyway. Yeah. As a start. Right. Yes. Very good. Um, tell us, Wendy, what is helpful to understand about adult attachment and the different attachment styles that may show up in our young children, our grown children, or ourselves that are at play? Yeah. So uh, again, as we know, the adult, uh, the attachment dynamics continue throughout our life. So in adult life, a secure attachment relationship may be between a parent and a caregiver, but it might also be between friends or between romantic partners or even a social group. And those are relationships that continue to function to provide security and comfort. So in, a, in an adult attachment relationship, I might say, I care for you and believe in you and want you to be all that you can be. And you do that for me as well. It's, it's mutual and reciprocal, the support. Uh, there's also the ability in those adult, those um, good adult re attachment relationships to be able to separate and to belong. So I'm comfortable with being inde independent and intimate in this relationship. So we will continue to have more of a parent-child attachment relationship with our adolescents and young adults at those phases in their life. But as those kids get older, those relationships might become more reciprocal and the support might be more reciprocal and mutual. Uh, so we hope that our children will grow up to have healthy adult attachment relationships in their adult life, as well as to be able to provide secure attachment for their own children one day. Uh, and so the different attachment styles, the, the things that we talk about in terms of young children's attachment behavior, the secure, uh, avoidant, anxious, or fearful attachment dis, uh, labels that we use with children when they're young can also define adult behavior with some modification. So 
a secure adult, for example, is can be both intimate and autonomous in relationships, feels confident and trusting, and can regulate their difficult emotions and are comfortable with emotions. An avoidant adult might tend to lack trust, be uncomfortable with intimacy and dependence, and be unexpressive basically. An, an anxious adult might be distressed over their needs being met in the relationship and then become clinging, controlling, and overexpressive, we might say. And the fearful adult has a mixture of all of those features or some of those features. So the, the point of having these labels or this structure is it just gives us a framework to understand why our children might be either avoidant or distant or why they, why they might be clingy or demanding, that these are ways that they are trying to defend against those basic fears of rejection or the, the fear that their basic attachment needs of security are not going to be met. So it's helpful for us to understand our own attachment tendencies as adults and as parents. So although hopefully we have worked through our stuff, as we say, and we've become secure adults, we might have a tendency when we're stressed to move towards one or the other to be more avoidant or anxious. So that might be as a parent, when we're stressed, we might as avoidant parents, we might want to say, okay, I'm done. You know, you're on your own. I've done what I can, have a nice life. <laughs> if we're more anxious attached uh, parents, when we're stressed, we might move more to, you know, why don't you appreciate what I'm doing for you? Why can't you change? Why can't you be a good child for me? And so we just have to be aware that we may have tendencies to, to fall into this and, and to endeavor to move back into being Again, those great secure attachment figures who can regulate our emotions and continue to respond constructively to our kids. So that's why it's helpful for us to understand our attachment style and also to understand our kids' attachment style. So if they are responding um, out of ambivalence or anxiety, we understand why that is. And we just have to continue to move in and address the deeper fears and to to provide security and support and comfort, uh, to invite them to trust us more. And again, as I said earlier, sometimes it's helpful to say, I think what to educate our kids and express, I think what's going on is you're afraid I'm gonna reject you and, and I'm not. That's all I can say, I'm, I'm here. So let's see if we can kind of hang on to that and I can be of help to you in this. So that's why having these frameworks to work with, it just gives us good understanding and, and may um, then um, inform us on how we strategize and relate with our kids. Great, great. And I know, um, you know, our next question may get into this because I know that you talked earlier about um, kids are more often also learning about their biological family in this age and stage or even beginning to reach out. And I, I know that can um, be challenging for the foster yes. or adoptive parent to navigate as far as um, being the secure base, even if the child's loyalty may feel like it's shifting or yes. um, 
being drawn toward identifying with another uh, part of their identity and part of their family. So, um, yes. Yeah. And, and maybe I'll comment on that um, since you mentioned it, because I think if we keep in mind that whoever can be an attachment figure for this child is a good thing. So sometimes the biologic biological family uh, can't be for a period of time. Sometimes they can be as they are beginning to also, you know, going through their healing process. And so for our child to have a good attachment with their biological family or to sort of shift their loyalties to that direction might isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, we want for them to go, yes, to know that there are many people who can be that for you. And we want that for you as well. So we have to um, wrestle with not being threatened by that as the foster parents or adoptive parents. And of course, there's a concern if, um, if those other adults uh, are not really um, capable of being secure attachment figures yet, then we have to, and that, that could be a whole nother podcast, you know, we have to sometimes step in and, and modulate and moderate that to whatever extent we can, you know, the adult child, the young adult child will, you know, at some point have their right to reach out. But I think we do what we can to protect them in that process. If it's not yet safe for them to, um, to attach to those other, you know, uh, family, to their original family. So, um, but that also can be a very positive thing in their life going forward. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm thinking of some families who have um, that challenge at this time. And um, some of the bio family is a a little manipulative in how they're Mm -hmm. interacting with the young person and um, also the young person feeling really torn about loyalty and not necessarily that question of loyalty being asked of from the foster or adoptive parent side or even from bio family, but just that conflict within. Yeah. 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 So sometimes all we can do is, is as you said, not, not put the child in that position of choosing or asking for loyalty, but just to be empathetic and say, yes, that's, we understand that's part of what you're struggling with. And we're just here to support you however we can as you figure that out. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, How might foster and adoptive parents need to shift expectations and recognize um, that important role we do play as a safe base? How can we help our young people um, who may be resistant, lack motivation, or be ambivalent. I know you've talked about this a little bit already, but um, suspect you have more to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the resistance, lack of motivation is really a, a big struggle for many of these kids. Uh, let me say something about secure base first. You know, I think as as simplistic as this sounds or general, I think the the more we can practice secure attachment behavior as their caregivers, the the more help we are. So emotional regulation, I think, is a lot of it. Tolerating our own ambivalent, strong feelings, and you know, our 
tendency to want to withdraw or attack when we get stressed. So just being um, expressing our emotions and managing that appropriately. I think another thing that helps is just continuing to reaffirm and clarify our commitment to our children and their place in our family. Uh, and even if they don't seem to want to hear it, again, it's that idea of that's information that's always in the air because it's the truth and it's important and it's part of our reality as a foster or adoptive family. And so we're always, we're free to say, um, you are, you know, you, you are part of our family and we care about you. And it might be saying that through a door and hopefully the teen on the other side of the door is hearing it, you know, but we just, we keep saying it. That's important. We keep putting it out there. Uh, I think noticing all the little, and I mean really little, and incremental steps that we see them taking, signs of growth in them, um, especially if they are on one of those long-term timelines, you know, little, little steps of self-care and doing things for themselves, taking steps of responsibility and, and acknowledging that is really important. And I think changing our expectations and basing those on our child's own abilities, their level of emotional security, and of course their history, where they've come from. So they might be one chronological age, it might be chronologically 18, but developmentally they might be much younger <laughs> in, in some ways. So they, they need support as if they were younger and might not really be able to do some of the things for themselves that we think they should be able to at this point and need lots of support. So as far as resistance, um, one set of strategies that work is creating a lot of structure or maybe more structure around that child than we normally think we would once they're an older teen or even an 18, 19, 20-year-old. If, if they're living with us, if they're dependent upon us, being able to say, you know, we're requiring you to do self-care. We are requiring you to take steps uh, to take care of some of the issues. And it might be those first layers of difficult things like depression or isolation, substance use, learning dis challenges and disabilities. So we come alongside and say, we're doing this. We're going to take your hand and we're taking you here and we're taking you to this support and we're handing you your medication each day. And, you know, that kind of uh, high structure because that's what they need, even though they might chronologically be older. And I think that's one thing that helps. Another thing is good old um, logical and natural consequences and um I, I probably was going to say this a little bit later about motivation, but I'll say it now while I think of it. <laughs> okay. um, say we, we want to acknowledge that if you take these steps to take care of yourself, we want to acknowledge that with a privilege, with some kind of support that's meaningful to you, or allowing consequences if you don't take these steps then the consequences might be, you know, the classic thing is if you don't do your laundry, 
the consequences is that you'll be smelly. And I don't know how you'd feel about that hanging out with your teenage friends, you know? So, you know, kind of allowing the natural and, and um, logical consequences to, to uh, fall out, you know, and um, that can create motivation as well. So I think more structure sometimes and um, just kind of having, you know, incentives that would be meaningful to child can help. And I know earlier you talked about the reciprocal uh, secure attachment relationship we want to yes. ultimately get to with our children and knowing, say, if we have an 18, 19 year old who's developmentally 13, um, that we may not be getting that. We might be getting really disrespectful language, uh, treatment, lack of gratitude for, um, you know, providing a meal or different things that, uh, can of course trigger (laughs) parents, right? So um, how do you uh, manage that if you're not getting that reciprocal um, kind of feeding back that that you need to keep going as a parent and are feeling burned out working with your adolescent, young adult child? Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think as as we probably would with a 13-year-old, we might say, I, I don't think, you know, we might say things like, I don't think you meant to call me a blank, you know, expletive. <laughs> right. Why don't you try again? You know, tell me what's really going on or tell me what you're upset about. Or it might be saying, um, you know, take a break that those aren't our house rules or that we don't talk to each other like that, or we don't treat each other like that. So I think we have to continue. It sounds, maybe sounds counterintuitive. Maybe we have to continue to implement some discipline as we did when the kids were younger, even though our kids are 19 or 20, because they're still there in our home and we're caring for them. And so we continue, we, we have the ground rules and we have behavioral ground rules And um, so I think that may be all that we can do. Uh, This is a little bit off your question, off topic, but I think this idea of kids will often say, well, I have a right to privacy or I'm an adult now, so you can't do any of that anymore. And we say, well, right to privacy ends at, even though you're 19, it ends at, you know, bad behavior. And it ends at, right to privacy ends at um, if you're doing something that we think is dangerous or is hurtful to yourself, or if you're isolating yourself, or we think there's, you know, drugs in the house, you know, any number of things. So the rules feel like the, the kids and at still younger, although they're not, but you're saying th- those are rules that we still need to implement. So then as far as taking care of ourselves as parents. I think we just have to understand what's going on. And I suppose the good thing about having older teens is that sometimes we can take a break. Sometimes we can say, good, I'm, I'll let you stew in your bedroom. And as long as I know you're safe, and I'm going to go away for a day, I'm going to take a day off and regroup. We might not have been able to do that when our kids are younger. So uh, we may be able to create times of breaks for ourselves uh, to um, to move away, take a break, 
and and uh, re-energize and regroup to move back. But it takes a lot of commitment. We, we need a lot of support to keep um, moving in as attachment figures when our kids still do not seem to appreciate it <laughs> and yes. receive it. Yes. Yeah. But hanging in there is so important. And that's why we need support. I know um, in your recent training, you talked about mo- motivational interviewing. Uh, could you explain what that is and how we could use this approach with our older children? How can we also elicit statements of self-efficacy? How can we do these kind of tools, use these, put them in our skill set? <laughs> yeah, great. Um, yeah, so motivational interviewing is uh, is actually a form of counseling, and it's really a set of questions and a certain way of asking questions and a certain way of making observations that can help with resistant populations, as we say. And so I think they, the ideas can be adapted in how we talk with our kids. And they use um, some of the good communication skills that we already know, like reflective listening and asking open-ended questions that ask for more than a yes and no answer, but ask for exploration, help the child explore, you know, tell me more about that. Uh, So it's a line of questioning that can help kids find some point of interest in making a change and then maybe being able to figure out some steps towards that. So it's really best in helping a child target some specific behavioral changes, although empathy and reflective listening is a part of it. So, for example, along with asking open-ended questions and reflective listening. It sounds like you're feeling this. Sounds like you're thinking that. Help me understand that more. Am I am I getting it? Am I understanding it? Tell me more if I'm not. It might be asking questions about what are the, you know, what are the pros and cons of changing or staying the same? You know, what are good and bad things for you about um, being, you know, staying in your room all day versus getting out and having times with a social group? Um, when when we, when we hear, we listen for, and this is hard to find because it's sometimes very covered under lots of ambivalence. If we hear for some expression of change, we want to reflect that back to the child. So if a, if a child is complaining, you know, I wish I had a job or I wish I had more money to spend. We might say, aha, there's, sounds like you'd like to be more independent. Sounds like you'd like to take care of yourself more. That's great. And so that might spark in that child, yeah, I want that for myself. So that's that expression of desire to change. So then we begin to ask lots of questions around that about, well, how would that happen? What do you think you might do about that? What does that look like, et cetera? Uh, So let me give you some more examples maybe of what some of those kinds of questions might be, but looking for little sparks and inklings of interest in changing. And and Wendy, just if I could interject, what if you're not getting that from your child? What if your child is feeling pretty apathetic, not motivated, um, satisfied with looking at the lifestyle maybe of of, um, other people in their life, bio family, or knowing someone who who lives off benefits or, um, you know, what would you suggest? There? Right. 
Yeah. Well, I'll say with some humor. Well, then sometimes <laughs> this model of motivational interviewing has real limitations <laughs> with someone who is extremely ambivalent. Mm-hmm. But the okay. Well, let me say two things. the The theory is that being stuck for a period of time is a very natural part of change, and so not um, maybe a. a a young person needs to go through a period of time of ambivalence and being stuck and finding that over time that really isn't working or that really isn't a good place to be. And there are negative consequences to that. And according to this model, this is kind of a humanistic model, you can't talk someone out of that. They just need to experience it and find their own way. So that again is letting, having to let that child maybe live with that ambivalence and the consequences for a while. Uh, But it might also be then, I guess, saying, I think, I bet you do want. So they might not be offering you some interest in change. The best we might be able to do is say, boy, I bet you do want to have more of your own money, or I bet you do want to have this or that or to be more independent. Well, that would feel really good. You know, I think that would feel really good, wouldn't it? (laughs) So you slice through the ambivalence and you trust that they are hearing that. and, And I believe that you can I believe you can do that for yourself. I just so believe in you. But anyway, that's my opinion. I hope that's what you decide to believe about yourself. But I'm going to keep telling you that I believe in you and that you can do it. What can I, anything I can do to help, you let me know. So you you get the idea. We continue to send those messages and hopefully that cuts through. Wonderful. Yeah, that yeah. moving in. We have to stay with it even if they're not. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, let me just say a couple other things about this line of questioning. So yeah, it, it, you know, there's certainly, there are limits when there isn't too much motivation. And that might be when we have to, again, as we said earlier, we have to step in and say, sorry, I'm doing this for you. I'm taking your hand and you are coming along with me and we are taking this step to get you some help. Uh, because we know staying stuck is maybe becoming dangerous for our child or will have um, such bad consequences eventually. Um, But um, some of the other ways to ask questions might be, uh, you know, what was it like before this was a problem? What was this like when you were doing more of those good things for yourself? You know, what did that feel like? And, And hopefully they'll say that felt, they'll recognize that felt better. What would happen if you weren't stuck in this point? What what do you think that would look like? Um, how do you, you know? What are your goals? What would what are some things you'd like to see happen? And again, you can take examples of you know getting a job or getting up and going to school, things that are really challenging, and just saying, well, what would it be? Um, I or I noticed. You know, what, what do you think you want to do about it? Sounds like you want to have more money. Sounds like you think you should get a job. What do you think you're going to do? Well, I guess I, I guess I could go online and look at job listings. Well, well, great. Anything I can do to help with that? 
and then check back later. Um, how did that go? Seems like I saw that you were doing that. Seems like you're really able to do that for yourself. You know, what helped you do that? So you just continue to reflect on what, what any movement that we see going forward in, in how we respond to them. So I think that you get the idea, you know, in, in that line of questioning and, um, you know, helping them with eff efficacy, I think is, um, just noticing you've been notice you've been working hard um that's different than before how were you able to do that last week you weren't sure you were able to now you do you know um how are you able to to avoid the things that got in your way before you know how do you feel about all the changes that you've made uh, so this instills hopefully confidence so they can keep moving forward yeah so you're really naming those shifts and the movement yes. you're seeing following that. Yeah. The yeah. And they're they could just be tiny little steps um, that they're taking, but they're not insignificant. That's what we have to point them out. I noticed you got up and worked with kids um, who just can't get out of bed and take a shower, you know, and one day they do and you just go, gosh, you're so handsome gosh, look at you, you know, the parents go, wow, got in, or he got a haircut, you know, and sort of stepped out of his depression. And wow, gosh, you're such a handsome guy. Glad yeah. to see you, you know, <laughs> out of that. So all of those little things. Yes. And it almost yeah. feels like, as I hear you talk about helping with the self-efficacy statements, that that also could be a point of hope for the parents to just focus on that and, and focus yes. on the little areas of growth or the slight step forward um, to get, if they're not getting the reciprocal response from the child, it could be a way to tap into yes. seeing the positive. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the child's not able to say, may not be able to say, gosh, I'm so proud of myself. I got out of bed today and took a shower. Or I looked for a job online. So we have to say that for them. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, well, Wendy, as we wrap up our conversation, is there anything else you'd like to share with our foster adoptive or kinship parents and caregivers about better nurturing attachment and helping our kids launch? Yes. Well, I think that as we continue to say all along, just that um, need to keep communicating our commitment to our child and that they have a place in our family in, in whatever way that's going to look like. Even foster children continue to have a place, so to speak, in our family because we've been an attachment figure in, in their life. So they can internalize that, take that with them. We'll always be thinking about you, caring about you. We are here down the road for you. Um, but that long-term commitment hanging in there, uh, especially when our kids have setbacks, really takes a lot of endurance and patience, needless to say. So recognizing, as you said, that we feel fatigue and pain and relief and guilt and disappointment, all those things about how things are going or how they're not going, and being able to acknowledge that these feelings are normal. And again, it's so simplistic, but just we need so much support in that process as parents. And we also need time to rest and regroup 
and recharge the three R's. I get my three R's, I guess, um, <laughs> yeah. or someone's three R's. Uh, so having, um, um, kinship support and, um, caregivers who come in so that we can take a break and mentors and all those good things. So we really do need to be away sometimes for a time to do that regrouping. And sometimes I want to say, I think those blips, which are sometimes really difficult, it might be a time that a child is in the hospital or a time that a child is in a recovery program or living in a group home that, that's our time. We're still committed, but we, we can also regroup. Gives us a little bit of a break, and then we're ready to move back in and reaffirm our commitment to hang in there. The other thing that I think is helpful to hold on to is that this process may take a long time, and so our young adult uh, kids may get there, but in their late 20s, in their 30s, and we want to hold on to that, that it, it can happen. And that's absolutely not untypical, that it isn't until that point in life that they're mature enough, have had a little bit more time to be interested in continuing their own healing and their own recovery, to want to have insight into how their foster and adoptive experiences have affected them. And they're not ready to do that until they're much older but they do get ready. They do get to that point. So that's a hopeful thing we can hold on to. And again, that whatever um, time we had with them, or if there's, if there's a disconnect and then a return as sometimes happens with adoptive kids, adopted kids, that, that doesn't diminish the impact that we had, that our attachment, we've been a secure attachment that has changed them in some way. So we really have to hold on to that, that that is meaningful in our kids' lives in the long run. Thank you. Wendy, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your time, uh, your insights. I know I have some takeaways from this conversation uh, for parenting my own children and that the listeners do as well. And I just love that you give us that hope that even if it's not happening now, that's normal. And it can come, yes. it can happen yes. in later development for our children as they grow and heal and become full adults. So thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. It was great talking with you, Kristen. Thank you for listening to the Help One Child podcast. We hope that you found helpful insights and practical parenting tips from your time with us. See you next time.